Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Man, those words never get old. I used to not like coming to church, but now I appreciate it. Like, this is my thing. Like, I love coming to church. I should, right? But I remember not wanting to come to church. Some of you give me the amen look but not necessarily <laughs> praise God that we can be together. But I used to hate coming to church, y'all. I'm just going to keep it a buck, as my daughter would say. Um, as a child, I was, ooh, ooh. and even as a teenager, but God, amen? amen. But God. And so I remember... After coming to faith in Christ, um, there wasn't one area of my life that the Lord didn't fix up. I was a hot mess. He turned my life upside down in a good way. And when I came to faith, I had this overwhelming desire read God's word. And at the time, I dropped out of high school, so me picking up a book and trying to read something was a big deal. You understand what I'm saying? The more I read God's word, the more I realized that there were so many areas of my life that were just not in line with God, with his teaching, definitely with his desires for me. And I understood more fully my brokenness. Um, but it made me closer to God. It brought me closer to him. The more I read, the more I would pray, and the more I would worship. And of course, my appetite for God's word began to increase. I found myself reading scripture everywhere. At the bus station, in my break rooms, beside my bunk, in BMT. I couldn't put God's word down. God's word had destructed every part of my life that was not in line with him. The psalmist in Psalm 119 gives us an illustration of just how powerfully destructive God's word can be in our lives. In verses 57 through 64, we read of the devotion which we should have to God's word. And if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. In your pew Bibles on page 513, if you could please stand. I know it's been a while since we've done this, so stretch out your legs there, Brother Tom. Stand with me as we read the word of God together. Psalm 119, if I haven't said that already, verses 57 through 64 read, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think of my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you. 
Because of your righteous rules, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Please join me in prayer. Father God, as we continue with last summer's series on the good word, we are so grateful that you have brought us to this place. May we thirst more for your word. May we thirst more for you. We thank you for your word, Lord. And we thank you for this morning for bringing us here physically, Lord, but also spiritually, Lord, from the places that you've brought us from. And as we seek to spend time in your word, Lord, I pray that you will speak through me. Let your spirit hide me. Let your truth be received, Father God, on good soil, that it may sprout and bear fruit. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. Our title for today's text is Destructive Devotion. Destructive Devotion. If there is one thing that I could ask you to remember today that I would ask you to take home with you is that devotion to God is reflected by our appetite for his word. Devotion to God is reflected by our appetite for his word. I'm so glad that we were able to jump back into Psalm 119 from last summer because I think it's fitting that this sermon follows the last 10 on Ecclesiastes. For 10 weeks, we were told by fantastic preachers, I may add, that God's word should be the center of our lives. Anything else that we pursue is fleeting and vanity. And so we begin today with the sermon series that we started last summer on the sufficiency of God's word. The series is titled The Good Word. There were seven series or seven sermons that we preached last summer. There will be seven this summer and then eight next summer. Just to give you a little bit of a review, because it's been a year and some of you may not have been here last year, but Psalm 119 is a psalm. It's the longest uh, chapter we have in Bible, in scripture, but it is all focused on the word of God and God's word being completely sufficient. It is an acrostic poem. Each section, there are 22 sections of this psalm, each beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each of those sections are unique in their own way. Each section has eight verses, each beginning with the same Hebrew letter. For this particular series, it is Chet. In your um, Bibles, you may see it spelled C-H-E-T or H-E-T-H. But it's a fascinating and unique series. This chapter of the Bible, probably a few other chapters in Psalms, are divinely inspired, where each verse is numbered by God. Each chapter is sanctioned by God. It's a really unique text. For today's sermon, we're going to focus on Psalm 119, 57 through 64, which in itself is pretty interesting to me. And I love my brother Brian. A couple weeks ago, he talked about um, when he preached at our third Sunday evening service that the sermon must first preach to you. Amen, brother? before you can preach it. And this text has really touched my heart this morning, so I pray that you will be blessed by it. Our first point this morning is that devotion is warranted by God's 
provision. Devotion is warranted by God's provision. Verse 57 and 58 read, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. To say the Lord is my portion more literally means my portion, O Lord. It is an emphatic statement that the psalmist is making saying God is my complete portion. English sometimes doesn't translate as well, but I prefer um, a literal take to this text. My portion, O Lord. Think about it this way. Let's say you and I, Brother Dan, are driving down the road. We're passing the church. And I say, Nansman River is my church. That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But what if I say, my church, Nansman River? Do you understand the difference? There's an emphatic declaration that we find here in this text. And when we talk about portion, that's not a term that we use lately. I don't think I've ever said the word portion in a sentence. So we have to go back in Scripture and figure out what exactly is the psalmist talking about. So I started in Deuteronomy. I can never say Deuteronomy right on microphone. It's always, you guys know what I'm saying. Chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Here we have Moses giving the Levitical law, talking to the Hebrew people as they prepare to enter into the promised land. They will still have to go through their journey in the wilderness, but they still need to understand who God is and how God desires for them to live. So he says here in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, regarding the food provisions for the Levitical priests. He says, Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion, there's our word, or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance, and they shall have no inheritance among their brothers. But the Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. It's interesting that they have no inheritance, but the Lord is their inheritance. Do you understand the difference? Their inheritance was completely God. Let's read on in Joshua chapter 13, verse 33. As Moses is getting ready to divvy up the land that they've come into and that most of it has been conquered. Between the 12 tribes, he has to divvy up and say, well, Judah's going to get this portion, Benjamin gets this, Gad and Manasseh and so on. But for Levi's tribe, he says in verse 33, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. The Levites had no land of their own. They had no material possessions, but they had God. I'm reminded of my brother some years back as he was struggling with his faith, and I'm trying to convince him that God can provide, and he's dealing with financial choices and different things. He's saying, well, is God going to drop down a, a gallon of milk out of heaven for me to feed my children? I said, he might. He could. God's provision is better than anything that we could own or touch. You see, the portion of God was their inheritance, was their provision, was their sustainment. Not just for them, but for their offspring. To have no land meant that they had to fully rely on God. I love the New International Reader's version of this text, the first half of 
verse 57, it says, Lord, you are everything I need. You are everything that I need. If we think logically about this for a second, if God is completely sufficient in his ability to provide for us, if he is wholly loving, if he's given you everything that you need, including his word, what is the proper response? Adoration, devotion, praise, and definitely to know and desire his commands. The psalmist continues, I promise to keep your words. The Lord is my portion. He's given me everything that I need. So I promise to keep your words, O Lord. You see, promises nowadays are fickle, are they not? But promises for the Hebrew people in ancient times meant something. Your word was your bond. Promises were taken to the grave. This was like a covenantal commitment between the psalmist and God, like a marriage covenant. The author recognizes that God is complete in his provision, which speaks to the power and love and goodness of God. And so he committed himself to keeping the commandments. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, then you will. Now we're going to try that again, church. If you love me, you will obey or keep my commandments. We know it, right? We know it. He continues in verse 58, I have sought your favor with all my heart. Favor is translated, I've sought your grace, I've sought your face, your nose. Literally, he seeks to be in the presence of God with this truth in mind that God is his portion. He wants his commandments. He wants to be in his presence. And with all his heart, he's done so with everything that he has. There's an emphatic nature, an urgency, a passion that we see here in the song. I've sought your heart. I've sought your face with everything I have, Lord. Speak to me. He continues, be gracious to me according to your promise. God's graciousness is a sign of his mercy. It's interesting that the psalmist cites God's word for why God should be faithful to him. He doesn't say be gracious to me according to what I've done or be gracious to me according to what my wife has done since she's so faithful. Be gracious to me according to whatever. Be gracious to me according to your word. He points God, not that God needed to be redirected, but back to his promise and his word. Friends, our hope is in God's commitment, not to us, (laughs) but to himself. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Jeremiah 37, or Jeremiah 32, verse 7, this is not in your notes, says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God's provision shows us that he can do anything. He doesn't need us, friends. He doesn't need anything, and we can rely on him. I think of 
when I first joined um, the Air Force in 2004, they took us through a bunch of different briefings those first few weeks of um, basic military training. And one of them I remember specifically because it was the benefits briefing. And a lot of you are here today because of the benefits of the military through God's grace, of course, right? <laughs> but the benefits are really important. They talked about all the health care I would receive, Sister Linda, and again, I didn't have health care, <laughs> so that was important to me. They talked about the education I could get. I didn't have an education either, Sister Chantel, so that was important. They talked about the housing that was provided. Now, we're not talking like a gated community. Well, it was a gated community, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but all the benefits that were provided. And so I got really interested in what the military was about. Not because I loved it, I just wasn't that guy, but because of the benefits that it brought for me. You see, if we understand God's word, it tells us that he's a provider. So when I was in school, I studied hard. I wanted to be the best at my job. I studied the OIs and the regulations and all these things because I understood that the benefits that the system were providing for me drew me to want to know more about the system. Friends, God surpasses the government's ability to provide for us. His word is sufficient. There are some skeptics, perhaps, who may think, well, why is there so much famine in the world? If God's word is so sufficient, then why is there so much fighting over religion? Or perhaps you've been reading the Bible for years and it hasn't stopped your ailments. It hasn't stopped your husband from leaving. It hasn't stopped your son from drinking. It hasn't stopped you from whatever the situation may be. And I think those are valid questions. And I'd like to go to scripture with some responses to those questions. In Matthew chapter 4, the first... 11 verses we read of the temptation of Jesus. Jesus was tried in three different ways by Satan. After he was in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. The first temptation Satan tells Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Christ's response was that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Temptation number two, Satan takes Jesus on the pinnacle, pinnacle of the temple and tells him, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Christ's response was again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Temptation number three is found in verses 8 through 11. Satan takes Christ to the top of the world so that he can see all the kingdoms and their glory. And he says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. To this third temptation, Christ responds, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, quoting scripture. Three different times, in three different unique ways, Satan tried to tempt our Savior. He tried to sow doubt in God's ability to provide. Specifically, that was his tactic. We see the same tactic in Genesis 3. 
with Eve as she is looking at the apple. As she considers it and Satan continues to tempt her with her, he won. And because of that, we are here fighting for the day where the shalom of the garden can come again, friends. We've lost that peace that we once had with God. First John chapter 2 calls it the desires of the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All these three temptations, these tactics by Satan have an aim to sow in doubt into our hearts about God's ability to provide. If Satan can just, just little by little start to take away your trust in his ability to provide, friend, then you're in trouble. That's his number one goal. Is God able to provide? Friends, is the Lord your portion today? How do you respond when Satan is tempting you? Do you find yourself going back to Egypt like the Hebrew people would do when things got tough and difficult? Do you find yourself relying on anything else other than God? What is your go-to? Spurgeon says it this way, I quote, this verse is more properly translated, the Lord is my portion. We could answer every temptation with the reply, the Lord is my portion. And if he is truly our portion, we don't need to look for satisfaction in fleshly pursuits, end quote. If the Lord is our portion, there is nothing that Satan can throw at us that will stick. I don't care if it's pornography. Your response should be, the Lord is my portion. If it's alcohol, the Lord is my portion. If it's arthritis, the Lord is my portion. If it's debt, friends, help me out. The Lord is my portion. If it's bratty teenagers, the Lord is my portion. I heard an amen or two. If it's stubborn husbands, if it's cancer, if it's loneliness, fatigue, age, whatever, friends, the Lord is our portion. And that must be our proclamation. My next point is devotion is demonstrated by our repentance. The psalmist continues in verse 59, I thought about my ways and turned my steps back to your decrees. I hurried, not hesitating to keep your commands. He says here, I thought about my ways. The only way that we could consider our ways as we read through God's word is to consider God's ways. And so when we consider God's ways, we know that he is faithful, he is loving, he is loyal. When we think about our ways, we are sinful. We are weak. We are forgetful. I think of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying. And he said, can you just stay here and pray with me? And what did they do? They fell asleep. Friends, we are sleepers. I wish we had the strength, actually, in Christ we do, 
you know that if you've come to Christ. But friends, we, if you think about your ways, you realize that they are far from the ways of God. And if you've been alive longer than a day or two, then you know that either you've done wrong, somebody done done wrong to you, or both, probably. We are wicked people. And so when the psalmist says here, I've thought about my ways, he acknowledges his, he's a sinner. He is a sinner. And sin by itself is nothing. Think of sin by itself. If there's no God, well, what does it matter? Right, Brother Robert? If there's no standard, but if there is a God, then we are in trouble. Sin, its weight is contingent on who has the standard. And God's standard is perfection. You see, God is holy. And when we think about our ways, and when we read his word, we realize that we are wholly lacking. Jackie Hill Perry is one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book titled, Holier Than Thou. I'd like to use a part of what she says here in this passage, because I think it speaks to the holiness of God. She says, I quote, to say that God is holy is to say that God is God. All of God's ways, such as his moral purity and how he sets and how it sets him apart from all that is perverse, untrue lawlessness and unrighteous comes out of his being. No one told or taught God how to be good. That is simply who he is. And he can be no other way. Being that God is completely holy, end quote. Being that God is completely holy, our sin makes us completely unholy. Therefore, we are totally incapable of addressing that chasm. I love the bridge illustration when, uh, for the evangelism tools. Have you guys seen those before? This is man, where man is. There's a cliff right here in the middle, and this is God. And how do we get across? The cross. Friends, that's the only way that we can, we, well, we can't make up that difference, but Christ has made up that difference. We are far from holy, but in Christ, in Christ, friends, we are holy. The psalmist continues as he thinks about his ways and turn back to God's decrees, he says here in verse 59. He turned his steps back to the decrees of God. He understood two key principles of Christianity. First, sin is real and it is bad. Second, God is good and I need to go back to him. Sin is real, but God is good and I need to repent to turn back to him because my ways are not in line with God's ways and I need to do so post haste. He says here, I hurried not hesitating to keep your commands. There's a sense of urgency all throughout not only this section of Psalm, but the entirety of Psalm 119. The psalmist is not slow to get things done. I think of chores after dinner time. If I don't bribe my children with dessert before, excuse me, after chores, and guess what? It will take them an hour and a half to get their chores done. If I give them dessert before chores, forget about it. 
They take their sweet time. Friends, we need to be quick to repentance. We need to be repent, repentant in a way like the prodigal son was. In Luke chapter 15, I'm not going to read through the entire, um, the entire parable because you all know it. But we see that the prodigal son wanted the things of the world. He wanted those worldly desires. He didn't consider his father to be his portion. And so he wanted all of his things. He told his father, give me my things. I'm going to leave. I don't need you. He recognized that his portion was money and freedom and power or whatever he thought he was going to get out of life. He didn't really know. That's what's interesting. He didn't really know what he was going to get. He just thought these things existed out there. All the fun I'm missing or all the the things I could be doing. He didn't really know. But he found out, didn't he, Sister Nita? And so when he realized how far he was from God because Satan was able to sow in that doubt for his father's provision... And when he was out there, just as lost as he could be, he repented and went back home to his loving father who openly accepted him. Friends, we will follow the law that is dedicated by the treasure of our hearts. We will. I was talking in the lobby to brother earlier about whatever it is that we believe in will result in actions. We are just to embrace the consequences of those actions. Whatever the treasure of your heart is, it will show itself. Just give it time. When we fail to recognize God's full provision in our lives, we accept the world's lies of sufficiency for our lives. If your heart's treasure is God, you will devote yourself to his teaching, to his word. The prodigal son demonstrated a prompt, haste, repentance. And so should we. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21 read, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as you did also, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer has thus been fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Receive, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, which is Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Repent and do so quickly if you find yourself away from God. I heard a story about a brother who couldn't wait to the end of a sermon to give his life to Christ. And so he started walking up mid-sermon. If you do that, I ain't going to be mad at you. I promise. If you can't wait until the end because there will be an invitation, in your pew right now even, submit yourself to God. Ask for forgiveness and repent Cry out with everything that you have, Father, I need you because he is sufficient. My third point is that devotion will result in persecution. Devotion will result in persecution. As we continue reading verses 61, the psalmist says, Though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me, 
I did not forget your instruction. I rise at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments, though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me. I love how the psalmist transitions from repenting, going back to God, to the ropes of the wicked wrapping around him. Oh, I love that. Friends, I think that's important for us to take note of. Christianity ain't no cakewalk. Turning to God doesn't mean that you're going to be free of sorrow, of pain, of bitterness, of agony. It just means you have the ability to get through it and that there's hope in the world to come. He says, even though he was completely surrounded and wrapped with the cords of the wicked, he did not forget the instruction of God. There is no better example of this than Christ. On the cross, there are three different sayings where we have Christ on the cross with nails piercing his hands, thorns piercing his forehead, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, yet he still spoke God's word. These are not in your notes, but in Luke 23, verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. Quoting Psalm 31. Matthew 27, verse 46, he reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because God had forsaken him, but because he was quoting Psalm 22. You see, friends, Christ knew where to turn when the cords of the wicked had wrapped around him. The psalmist continues, I rise at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments. Midnight is the darkest hour. And reflecting back on the cords that were tightly wrapped around the psalmist, we see his determination. We see this perseverance of his faith. We see this devotion of his character to God's word. Have you ever tried to praise God in the middle of a trial? Have you ever found yourself so overwhelmed and so oppressed, and then you just start singing? It's tough. I shared this with my small group a few weeks ago. There are times in life, and I know some of you thinking, well, you're a pastor, you get extra blessings from God, and, you know, life is all peachy keen, and, you know, you probably get at the front of the line at Chick-fil-A and stuff like that. No, friends, that is not true at all. It's hard. This life is difficult. And there are times where I confess to my small group where it's difficult for me to praise God because I become distracted. Because all that's difficult around me begins to preoccupy me. But the Lord is my portion. Friends, the Lord is your portion. And if you keep that in mind that he's able to provide, then there's nothing that can stop you from enduring. Praise and fear cannot inhabit the same place. You will face persecution. Jesus told us clearly, they persecuted me. What do you think they're going to do to you? Every month I get um, a periodical in the mail here at the church. And it 
is from the Voice of the Martyrs. Some of you have heard of this organization. They're great folks to know. And it's tough to read, though, I'll tell you that. Because it's filled with stories of persecution. It's filled with stories of persecution from the Central African Republic, from southern Mexico, from Laos, from Ethiopia, Nepal, Nigeria, stories of Christians who have been driven from their homes. Friends, persecution is a part of our life in Christ. Difficulties are just par for the course. And if you follow God and you stick to his word, you'll know so by the difficulties that you face. But we have Christ. So I guess you're thinking right now you're ready to sign up and join the church and everything, right? Follow Jesus and lose your life. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says, quote, If you don't point people to God for everlasting joy, you don't love. You waste your life. End quote. Friends, Passion for Christ is life not wasted. We can sit back, and I know we've got nice cars and things. I've got probably the biggest house I've ever lived in. I'm not bragging, but God has just been blessing us these days. We've lived in some small places, and I grew up, Lord knows, without nothing. But if I let that house and that HOA get to me, oh, (laughs) I'm missing it, friends. But as I read these articles and I persevere on my own, I'm reminded that this life is to be difficult. But in Christ, I can have hope. I would ask you, in those seasons of difficulty, commit yourself to God's word. At least once a year, try to read the Bible page front to back. At least once a day, maybe read a proverb. There's 31 of them. Make a goal of your life to spend time regularly in God's word because we know that the difficulties are going to come. We know that persecution will come. Commit yourself to reading and even memorizing scripture. I remember back in the day in Sunday school, that was a thing, (laughs) scripture memorization. It's still important, y'all. We must know God's word. Christ wasn't reading a book on the cross, friends. He spoke from his heart. Because God's word had been buried and hidden there. Amen? We must spend time in God's word. Our last point today is devotion is kept through community. It is kept through community. The psalmist continues in verse 63, I'm a friend to all who fear you, to those who keep your precepts. Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. I'm a friend to all who fear you, to those who keep your precepts. We have the privilege of having a mission house at our church. And there's a dear family who's moved in there a few weeks ago. They're from literally the other side of the world. But they're doing work for God in this kingdom. And so we opened our doors widely for them. And we loved on them. And they've loved on us. Church, we are a friend to any who fears God and keeps his word. 
The psalmist is now seeing how God's provision makes him worthy, which means we devote ourselves to his word, which also means that we will have times of repentance and persecution. But overall, overall, we must keep the faith through Christ and through our community. I hate when people call Christians like exclusivists or we have like a a secret club or whatever. I don't have any handshakes. Brother Chris and I have hugs, but they're not very good. Um, Not your fault, it's my fault. Christianity isn't necessarily exclusive, but maybe it is, Sister Ashley. Maybe it is, maybe it should be. John 13, verses 34 through 35 read, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Our witness to this world for Jesus is based on our ability to love one another. Man, that's tough. But thank you, Lord. Ain't no fake in the funk. We must sincerely love one another. We can't put on this facade. We really got to get in each other's life, church. Amen? Okay. We really have to get in each other's lives. Bonhoeffer is one of the theologians and examples of the faith that I look up to, and he wrote in his classic Life Together, I quote, It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken away from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren, end quote. It is God's grace that we are allowed to have small groups, friends. It is God's grace that we are allowed to meet for dinners and coffees and visit each other at the hospitals and do all these wonderful things, friends. It is God's grace, that we get to love each other. And so the psalmist continues, Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Who better to teach us how to love one another than God whose love fills the earth? The earth can't even contain the love of God. So he created a universe, and that can't contain his love. Romans 1 20 reads, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, that the things that have been made, so that we are without excuse. Friends, God's love is clear. Watching the sun come up, watching the moon, watching the smoke from Canada. God's love His creation is seen. It is evident. Therefore, our response should be like the psalmist as he ends here. Teach me your statutes. Teach me 
your statutes. A few weeks ago, we had Danny Aiken here to begin our series on Ecclesiastes. He wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes. He's also written one on Psalm 116, excuse me, Psalm 119. And I'd like to share with you his thoughts on verse 64. He writes, I quote, because God loves us in this way. We want to know and enjoy our God even more. The request, teach me, is a recurring theme in Psalm 119. It reminds us of the importance of loving our God with our minds. Knowing who he is and what he is like moves us to want to know him more. Where is such knowledge found? The simple answer is God's word. End quote. I think of the gazelle that's out on the safari or the savannah. I guess you, a savannah, the savannah, probably right. Savannah, thank you, Dan. And that one gazelle that's by itself away from the herd and the lions are lo- you know, lurching out there or the hyenas or whatever bad things. That one little gazelle, we know what happens to it, right? It gets swallowed up, Brother Tom. It has no chance. It's usually also sick right, or hurting or something like that, which I think kind of speaks to why it's alone or maybe as a result of its being alone. Friends, we are not meant to do this by ourselves. You just can't. As our brother explained so eloquently earlier, small groups are the way that we do life here at this church. And I would challenge you to consider committing at least part of your life to a small group, part of your time, We have 17 of those groups here, and we have two focuses that I think really speak to this portion of the psalm. We cultivate care, and we create community in these groups. If not a small group, friends, we have plenty of fellowship opportunities, five more this summer. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a men's backyard sports tournament where I'll be making some Smash Brothers, or it's not Smash Brothers, goodness, Smash Burgers. I got teenagers and the smash burgers for the men's ministries fellowship and the ladies are going to be meeting here soon for fellowship friends. It's important that we get together and do life. Sister Wanda, sister Peggy, brother Charles, it's important that we hold each other up, friends. What is it that is consuming the devotion of your life? And my question in closing is, is it God and his word. The one thing I wanted to leave you with earlier was devotion to God is reflected by our appetite for his word. And I would say, depending on the role or the place that God's word has in your life, it will determine the role that God has in your life. The importance of God's word, how you prioritize it, how you seek to study it, how you seek to memorize it. What do you go to in those times of difficulty? Those those answers will tell you the role that God has in your life. And friends, I'm not here to, to poke or prod. I'm just here to say I've tried it all and it's left me empty and lacking. God is faithful. He is enough He is our portion. And sometimes, unfortunately, we have to learn that the hard way. Friends, I'm here to tell you that God is able to provide. 
our greatest need in life is the ability to overcome sin. And he has provided for us to overcome our sin, that huge chasm between God's standard and who we are by putting Christ in the middle. Christ came to this earth, sent by his father to atone for our sins. He lived a sinless life. He loved deeper than anyone else. He trusted harder. He was fully and completely devoted to God and his word. He was the word of God. He was God's message to us. And he is here today asking, pleading, begging, beseeching for you to surrender, submit, and give your life over to him. In a few minutes, I'm going to pray, or a few seconds here, I'll pray, and I'll ask you to do just that. There is no other peace. There is no other remedy to your sin problem but Christ. Join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you are such a mighty provider. You are our portion. May we remember that now, Lord, as we consider the difficulties that we are going through in life, as we consider the circumstances by which we are dealing with, you are our portion. You are our portion. Give us the faith and the strength to stand on your word. Forgive us of our sins, Father God. We have failed to adhere to your teachings, to your commandments, to your law, to your statutes, to your way. We have, like the prodigal son, Lord, gone far from you, seeking provision from the world when you were right there. May we turn back now. We accept you as Lord and Savior of our lives. We commit to you all that we are and all that we have. We thank you for saving us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.